You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, hello and welcome to Doing Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. The reclaims of water to an archaeologist, what are the better explanations out there? We are now on episode 53. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archaeology. And we are continuing our examination of the top 10 pyramids of the world, according to Ancient Aliens. Now, this episode is based on episode 11 from season 19, so it's one of the brand new episodes from the series. Last time we looked at the bottom tier of the list, which included El Castillo, the pyramids of Teotihuacan, the Sican pyramids of Peru, El Mirador, and the supposed pyramid of Hellenicon in Greece. While this episode will continue breaking down this list, it is kind of separate from the previous episode. So you can jump straight in without wondering what is going on here, because, well, it's not really a narrative here that we follow in that sense. So what will we talk about then? Well, we will learn about the evolution of Egyptian pyramids and busting several myths surrounding their construction. This time we will focus mainly on Djoser's step pyramid. Then throw, um, well, ancient aliens uh, number four on the list to the side. We leave it at the wayside and instead we will talk about the pyramid builder Sneferu. You will see why I made this decision later, but it is a ancient Egypt special basically that we have in front of us here so we will build up our knowledge about ancient Egyptian pyramids so we later can tackle the great pyramids of Giza and if you want to learn more about the topics I talk about and where I get everything from yeah well then you want to check out the episode page where you can find the sources and resources that I used for this episode. Also, a very big thank you to all the patrons who are supporting this show. And the patron bonus episode will drop here in mid-January. And the focus will be on Chariots of the Gods by Van Däniken. I think you don't want to miss that one. And if you want to learn how to become a patron and how you can support the show, well, I will tell you all about that later in the episode. Now that we have finished our preparation, let's dig into the episode. Welcome back to Egypt, where we will look at number 5 on the list. The oldest pyramid on the list is the Step Pyramid of Saqqara. It was built by the third dynastic ruler, Necheriket, or as he's more often referred to as Djoser or Zoser. Djoser is the name maybe most associated with the pharaoh today and, well, even in later Egyptian writing. 
This seemed to originate from a mistranslation of the old records themselves by the well, later ancient Egyptian society and scribes. Netjeriket is the Horus name of the pharaoh Djoser, and this name translates to divine of body. So this is the name that the people would have used when they spoke with or about this pharaoh. Now, the confusion seemed to originate from a phrase associated with the Horus name. Kente Tad Yeser Nisut, or in English, Blessed be the country of the sublime king. Now, in later text from the 18th dynasty, we start to see the name Djoser Netjeriket appear in the king's list, referring to this king. Worth remembering is that the Egyptian culture lasted for some 3000 years, if not more. Many changes would have happened to the language itself. And I mean, if you look how English looked and was spoken and written 1000 years ago, it's quite a difference from the English we have today. So it's not strange that the 18th dynasty scribes would manage to get a mistranslation when they're looking at these texts that was at that point about thousand years old. Now to avoid confusion and save you from my pronunciation, I will use the name Yoser when I'm speaking about this pharaoh. And to be honest, I would have put this pyramid higher on the list, but I mean top five aren't too bad I guess. What's alarming is the information we get from the ancient alien people and Raimi Romani that appear quite frequently in this season and in this episode. Remy Romani is an Egyptologist that uh, frequent quite often on different television documentaries, especially on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. Mainstream archaeologists suggest the pyramid was built as a tomb for King Djoser. But like all other Egyptian pyramids, there is no credible evidence that a body was ever entombed there. So, this is a statement that we often see among, well, alternative historians when they speak about the Egyptian pyramids. And it's both true and false. It is untrue that we have never found any human remains in pyramids in general. Now, carbon dating has shown that at least two pharaohs have been found in their respective pyramids. Strohal and Vinanek et al. could demonstrate that the remains found in the 15th dynasty ruler Neferefre Isis pyramids correspond with Neferefre's death. Another set of remains found in the pyramid Djedkare Essesi also from the 5th dynasty, is another example of a ruler that seemed to have been found in their pyramid. And this was confirmed by carbon dating performed by Strohal's team that we mentioned just earlier here. And we should not forget the pyramid of King Unas, also 5th dynasty, constructed some 200 years after the construction of the Great Pyramid of Khufu. In addition to a few grave goods, and being the first pyramid with actual pyramid text and containing King Una's name, we also found the remains of an individual within the sarcophagus in the tombs. Now, these are not carbon dated yet, but due to the condition and other clues that we find here, 
they seem to be of the old kingdom and is presumed to be Unas himself. Hopefully, Test will be allowed at one point and maybe this can help us to really confirm that this is King Unas that we actually found within this pyramid. Regarding the Pyramid of Djoser, human remains were found in the pyramids. Still, Strohal et al. could show that this was a later burial and most likely not the remains of Djoser's. But it's clear it was a tomb designed to be one from the beginning, as we will see in just a moment. We also have text from ancient visitors in the mortuary temple who talk about their visit to the grave. Firth and Quibble describe several of these comments in their book documenting their excavation of the complex. One scribe, Ahamoses from the 18th dynasty, wrote on the temple walls, and I base this translation of <laughs> Niels Billings' translation. I came to visit the Djoser's temple and found it as if heaven was contained within it and the sun god rose within. He said, may pieces of ox, bird, and all good and pure things come to the car of Djoser. The righteous, may refreshing myrrh rain from heaven, may incense fall from above. Not all were, however, impressed with the graffiti <laughs> that we found within the mortuary temple of Djoser's, and we even have an opposing view, again based on Billings' translation. My heart becomes ill when I see this hand's work, like the creation of thoughtless women. Could it not have been someone here to stop them before entering this temple? What I see is scandalous. These are not the writers enlightened by tough. And we can learn from the graffiti both the positive and those texts that maybe a bit more, well, resentful in their approach that the ancient Egyptians knew what this construction was. They knew this was the burial complex for, well, by the time of the people of the 18th dynasty, the rather ancient King Djoser. And this is a vast and intricate construction consisting of more things than just the pyramid. To better understand this site, we need to look back again at the history of burials in ancient Egypt. Initially, we see simple graves dug down in the desert. The issue with these graves is, well, they are not permanent. The Egyptians would quickly have learned that this method of burial was not really the way to eternity. So they started to dug down into bedrock itself, creating a little room, and uh, later some would put a mound above this grave. Now, the mound would later evolve into what we know as a mustaba, and this is the Arabic word for bench. And these are large square structures where that were primarily reserved for the royalty, but would 
later also be allowed to be used by, well, the upper elite of ancient Egyptian society. And these mastabas was designed to be almost like a house for the deceased. As with houses today, this structure would become larger and larger and have several rooms and chambers containing everything the one who had gone west would need in the afterlife. In ancient Egypt, death was associated with the west, so if someone was dead, you would refer to them as a westerner, saying that they had gone west was an idiom meaning a person who had died. And as they grew, these royal mastabas became more and more complex and added funerary rites and architecture to them. For example, we start to see in the mastabas being built later had a perimeter wall and a funerary enclosure for the pharaoh in a separate location. So the pharaoh would basically have two burial sites. So there we have the evolution until Josers. So the graves evolved and became more elaborate. And then we have Joser who enters the scene and will change a lot of things that would become permanent in later burial practices, especially for the kings, the royalty. What Joser and, well, most likely Imhotep did was to look at the previous buildings, the graves of the ancestors of Josers, and realize that mud bricks, well, they are not eternal either. They opened a stone and started, in that sense, building in stone. At first, they just wanted an ordinary mastaba. It was, of course, large, but it was still just a mastaba, but built out of stone. And this is the first version of the grave. Yeah, the first version. I like to picture Djoser looking at the mastaba, taking form, saying to Imhotep, I mean, it's big, but how about we extend it a little bit on the side so everyone can see how great I am? So the mastaba was extended on two of the sides. But then Djoser back with Imhotep looking at the project and say, I mean, it's bigger, but... How about we extend it to cover the burials on the eastern side of the mastaba? Then, you know, everyone will know how noble and great king I am, right? Uh, yeah, it's definitely big, all right. So the mastaba was extended again. So we have three phrases and they are called by Egyptologists M1, M2 and M3. So mastaba 1, 2 and 3. Again, it's just my imagination, but... Again, picture Djoser standing there looking at the work, leaning over at Imhotep, who, I mean, probably starting to look a little bit annoyed by this point. I mean, it's wide. It's not really tall, though. What if nobody sees this? I mean, the temple walls would be roughly as high. So Imhotep sigh and changing the whole construction again. So... This time they aim for a four-story pyramid. And this is not the true pyramid that we know from later time. It's a stepped pyramid. So what we have is a mastaba on top of a second mastaba upon the third mastaba. (laughs) 
So we have now a four-story pyramid, the first one ever constructed. Was Yoser happy with this? Well, not really, since it changed to a six-story step pyramid instead. Yoser must have had at least one last suggestion for Imhotep. And then I can picture Yoser standing there going, I mean, it's big, but could it be that it's too big? What if this is the only thing they remember me for? But <laughs> there was no more changes to the grave. I just wonder if it's too big, you know? I mean, are people going to be remembering me or the statue? But note here that we only have discussed the outer layers of the grave itself. On the inside, it hasn't really changed. It looks exactly what the other royal mastaba looks like. Of course, he has a bit bigger, some new innovations. But other than that, most of it is the same. We see the same structure, the same ideas as we see in other masabas in this area. So ultimately, it's just masabas on top of other masabas, creating a large, simple structure that can support its own weight due to the design of the pyramid itself. Now, this pyramid comes with other inventions, like incorporating the funerary complex with the burial complex itself. Remember, this was two separate sites previously. The authors also added the site for his Hebset festival so he could be rejuvenated in the afterlife. Now, Hebset festival was celebrated on the king's 30th year on the throne to prove that he was still fit to lead the country. It most likely originated from a time when the pharaoh was removed from power when he was deemed to be too weak or too old. We must remember that the king at this time was supposed to physically lead the army by himself and do everything needed in person. He couldn't really send a proxy for most things. He was supposed to be there and do everything by himself. But by doing the Hebset festival, he could become young again. This ceremony included things like running, wrestling with young men and other physical activities that, when completed, would give the king a new life. Or at least make him young again. And while this is, well, the largest stone project uh, to that date and more or less the first real project made in stone, it still gives an idea on how they did things before this stone construction. Because while the construction was in stone, it was worked to resemble the materials that they usually used in building previously. For example, pillars were carved to look like reed or other organic material to give the impression of not being out of stone, but as they had done things up until this project. And there are even more innovations such as a sudden burial that we will find in later construction after this. We see one of the first human-sized cast statues in this complex depicting Djoser's. Again, this is something we will discover later and show that this place was really built for eternity. The pharaoh would not have a second death with uh, all of these safety precautions in place. This statue is today located in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and it's a stern man who looks, <laughs> looks out at us. I, I like the details in the statue, and they 
kind of aim for realism in a sense. You can even see that, well, Joser seems to have a very thin mustache on the upper lip, giving him a little bit of additional character there. And if we add all of this, the whole complex itself, what we find inside, the history of the site, it's quite evident that the pyramid was intended and used as a funerary complex. And we can add the, the hundreds of yours found with inscriptions that Joseph decided to preserve in one of his uh, rooms within the Mastaba complex beneath the pyramid. And these yours were inscribed with the names of earlier kings. And he put them there to show his connection. So, well, he was the legitimate ruler, therefore he was a god on earth, therefore he would be reborn as a god. And Nils Billing and other Egyptologists believe this yard were used to, well, in Nils Billing and other Egyptologists believe these yards were used in previous pharaohs have said festivals. And with the expansion of the M3 Mastaba, Yosser decided to take care of these artifacts. So these yours add to the evidence that this was Joseph's grave and this was constructed as a grave from the beginning. And Joseph's successor, Sekemket, also tried to build a step pyramid. With Imhotep as the visor, still, we can see that this pyramid used the same method as Joseph did, which isn't really strange since they have most likely the same architect. The difference is that Sekemenket died early and quickly, so only the first layer of the pyramid was completed. Based on, well, the pyramid's base size, they likely attempted to create an even larger construction than Djoser, most likely with seven layers. And Sekemket seemed to know what he wanted from the start and, well, only ended up with a sort of mastaba due to his short reign. As with Joseph's step pyramid, this was construction out of limestone and each addition to the layers would lean about 15 degrees inward. And the burial chamber was underground, which was costume of the time, as we mentioned previously. Again, they repeated the architecture from the older dynasty's mastabas. And if this would have been completed, it seems as it would have a mortuary complex similar to Djoser's. And even if this pyramid was never finished, we could still learn quite a bit from it. For example, we can see how stones were roughly cut at a quarry and then moved to the side and dressed there and then being put uh, at their final resting place within the pyramid. Now, when it comes to the character of Imhotep, we, we get a lot of strange claims from the ancient alien people. And one of the laziest is from, <laughs> from William Henry. Imhotep rose to the incredible status as the vizier or wizard to the pharaoh. This is where we get that word wizard from, vizier. Well, it is correct that Imhotep was the wiser of Djoser, a role often given to someone within the extended family during this time. The word itself is a modern invention. In ancient Egypt, the title was Djat or Chatti, a term we today translate to the Arabic phrase Vasir, translating 
to English, we get something like minister or a aid. And the word vazir literally translates to uh, to share the burden. It is not too far to compare this position to a prime minister's. The role of the Diyat included control and responsibility over agriculture, finances, military, logistics, city planning and religious affairs. The person having this title would undoubtedly have been one of the most influential person in all of Egypt. On the other hand, if we look at the word wizard, it originates from Middle English. And the earliest account that we have of this word is from 1440, some 4,100 years after the first preserved use of the title by the second dynasty pharaoh Ninetjer. The Middle English word also is just formed by the phrase wise, and then you add the suffix ard. To it and that's kind of it. <laughs> he showed up into the life of the king out of nowhere and then ascended into positions so quickly which is very uncommon in ancient Egypt. What does that mean? What do you mean out of nowhere? Did he drop from the sky or did he come from another land? <laughs> in Egyptian history you can normally trace every position back to their parents but in Hatab, nothing. These are Pretty strange comments from Remy Romani, who is supposed to be a actual Egyptologist. As I mentioned, Imhotep became the vizier during the reign of Djoser and probably held this position during the reign of the following two pharaohs. We have very few contemporary accounts of Imhotep, limited to a few inscriptions of his names and titles. One can be found on the base of a statue that supposedly depicted Pharaoh Josers, which would have been considered a really high honor in ancient Egypt. In this inscription, we learn that Imhopet was among well, several titles, also the chief architect of the Pharaoh. Hence the idea that Imhotep was the creator of the stepped pyramid of Saqqara. Interestingly, we don't see a reference to Imhotep as a healer in this inscription, even though he would became one of the few who later got deified in Egypt, and then he got deified as the god of medicine. That we don't find contemporary accounts of people living during the early dynastic period is really not that strange. We have to remember Imhotep lived 4,100 years ago, and documents from this era are scarce, and people didn't really pen their memoirs to be mass-printed either. If, if we are lucky, we can find a biography on the tomb's wall. However, Imhotep's grave is not yet discovered, and we will return to this shortly. Now, there are texts and statues of Imhotep that comes down to us from later periods. We have texts and traditions about Imhotep that date to the Middle Kingdom. While Imhotep was most likely a commoner, it was not unusual, as the alternative historians like to portray this race, or in this case Rami Romani even, we have other examples of people outside the royal extended family taking this place, such as uh, Kameni I, who was the vizier of Sneferu, that we will return to shortly, 
And Kagemni is also supposed to have been a wise man who wrote the wisdom text called The Instruction Addressed to Kagemni and His Brethren. However, this text is only preserved from, again, Middle Kingdom. So a couple of thousand years after this person lived when. Then there are viziers like Verbauba and Ninkaba, commoners again, who did not inherit this title. Now, there are examples when the title seems to have been inherited, such as Akehetetep, who was the son of Pathahotpe I. Pathahotpe appears to have been, again, one of these wise sages that might have penned the wisdom text, uh, the Maxims of Pathahotep. This book contained advice to young men on how to behave appropriately. But again, this text is preserved from later period of ancient Egypt. So Imhotep is not the only commoner that seemed to have been deified either. We have uh, Amenhotep, Hapu's son who was also bestowed this honor. I don't want to sound as I downplay in Hote's contribution. He must have been a smart cookie, but we need to look at his achievements and contribution in relation to other viziers and officials during the early dynastic period of the Old Kingdom and later, well, later viziers after this too. By doing this, we can better understand the society and how things come to be later in history. Imhotep might have been the, for example, original author of the medical text we know today as the Edwin Smith papyrus, and due to the nature of the text, it can be argued quite well that this was written during the construction of... uh, pyramids or other large-scale stone construction projects. Most of the texts deal with injuries one might succumb during these type of construction, such as broken limbs, uh, noses and um, head injuries and things like that. The advice is actually quite good and would have, (laughs) at least in some cases, actually been helpful. And it's written surprisingly scientifically with, well, a title that described the type of injury so you easily can find what you're looking for, how to examine the injury, the condition the patient is suffering from, and then how to treat the the wound, the patient. Now, there's also cases where the author says the condition is too severe to treat and there's nothing the doctor really can do and they should just leave them alone, basically. So, It has these, well, some things can be fixed, some things maybe can be fixed, and then, well, things that you can't really come back from, which is a kind of scientific approach to medicine, in a way, in an early way, at least. So let's go and see where the tomb of Imhotep might be then. That is also a mystery. We don't know how he died, but he was buried in a tomb. And that tomb was around here in Saqqara. The tomb in Mimhatab has never been found. So far, right? So far. But look around you, the desert is massive. When the tomb of Mimhatab is discovered, it will be the discovery of the century. Ancient astronaut theorists are hopeful that if the tomb of Imhotep is ever discovered, it might be found to contain the remains of another worldly visitor. 
So, Imhotep's tomb has not yet been discovered, but there have been several attempts. Professor Walter Emery was one archaeologist who set out trying to find the tomb. Emery knew that Imhotep was allowed a tomb close to Djoser's pyramid in Saqqara and thought that he could use Imhotep's god status to find it. In later Egyptian history, as we mentioned before, Imhotep became a god. With this in mind, Emery thought that the tomb of Imhotep would be a quite logical pilgrim destination. Upon surveying the area, he noticed an abundance of prayers and thanks dedicated to Imhotep. Remember, Imhotep was the god of medicine. Emery came across a tomb where this prayer was plentiful, and inside he would find droves of mummies of ibis birds stored inside jars, and a lot and lot of them. Now, the ibis was a bird closely associated with the cult of Imhotep. Carefully, Emery excavated the tomb and then, then Emery died. The excavation stopped and nobody has really picked it up again since. I'm not entirely sure why, but it would be of great interest to learn. But it would be of great interest to learn who the tomb belonged to. It might not have been related to Imhotep, just a tomb rumored to be the visors, and then just pilgrims went there and treated it as such, or it really does belong to Imhotep. I guess future will tell us later. So again, we see how the pseudoscientific crowd focuses on something that's not much of a mystery really, trying to make it a mystery. But when we start to read about it, we realize that this isn't really a mystery. But there is a real mystery in all of this that they don't really focus on here. Would it not be good television to hunt for the lost tomb of Imhotep, following the f- footsteps of Emery and maybe contribute to our understanding of ancient Egypt? If I had resources, the, the hunt of Imhotep would be a documentary I would like to make or watch. And, well, if someone else did it before, but a real mystery that we can potentially actually solve. It's not a constructed enigma that's only mysterious if you really haven't picked up a history book, in a sense. After the break, we will learn about this Sneferu fellow and why he might be the greatest pyramid builder of all ancient Egyptian history. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show. For as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for, you will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine! the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you will gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. 
You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together, we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. So, we are now on the number four of the top ten pyramids, according to Ancient Aliens. In this spot, we find the hidden pyramids of China. Something that was highly, highly unimpressive, since they they are somehow even worse than the Bosnian pyramids. That didn't even make the list, but <laughs> the story boils down to a pilot flying over China claiming to have seen a pyramid once. Then a second pilot claimed to have seen a jade pyramid somewhere else in China. The issue is that nobody else has seen them before or after, and uh, well, it was in inhabited areas. So it's strange that the locals do not have oral or written tradition of, you know, vanishing pyramids. But I mean, it's a good chunk of nothing. As there's so insufficient evidence for any of this to validate uh, the veracity of these stories, I suggest we utilize this moment to delve into the discussion of some pyramids that for some reason was overlooked and was not included on this list by ancient aliens. I'm talking about the pyramids of Sneferi. These buildings, especially the final red pyramid, really do deserve to be higher up on the list, but well, number four isn't terrible either. Sneferu was quite the character and must have had quite the willpower, because he would not build one pyramid. He made three during his lifetime. This pharaoh also introduced the first true pyramid to the world. Sneferu was the founder of the fourth dynasty and inherited the throne from his father, Huni. The succession to the throne seemed to have been really smooth, so Sneferu could easily take control over a unified kingdom with a well-run and established state administration. This will be key as we see later on. While Sneferu's, well, Pyramids are what he might be most famous for or remembered for by later generation. He also waged several wars in Nubia successfully, bringing back both wealth and glory for Egypt, according to well, the time at least. He also extends the agricultural estates and husbandries internally throughout Egypt to increase the farm yield. And this increase in food translate to a well-stocked treasury that you can use to do great stuff. As royalty was supposed to do, Sneferu started to plan for the eternal afterlife and decided to build his first tomb in Maidum. If you visit this site today, you will be met with a pretty strange monument. It does not look like a pyramid, but rather a lonesome tower guarding the desert. Around it, we can see blocks and rubble. Around it, as the outer layer has just fallen off, fallen down. And the pyramid have given the not-so-proud nickname El Haram El Kabad, or the False 
pyramid. The poor state of the pyramid is most likely due to later vandalism and locals reusing the stone. During the 1100 CE, Sheikh Abu Muhammad Abdallah described the pyramid as having five steps. And the three-level tower we see today was told by the Danish sea captain Frederick Nordén, who visited the pyramid in 1737. Flinders Petri noted that the locals were using the site as a quarry and that the um, any medium villager of rank would use the stone as part of their tombs. Now, some Egyptologists like Niels Billing suggest that Huni, Snefro's father, built the early stages of the pyramid. Others like Miroslav Barta or Mark Lerner suggest that Snefro built the whole pyramid and as evidence for this they suggest that Snefro's name appears is the only name that appears on the pyramids or within it in general and the ancient name for the site is Jed Snefro or Snefro and yours, a very fitting name for <laughs> Snefro, as we will see. The Medium Pyramid was originally planned to be a seven-step pyramid. But around step five, again, plans change. Go back to Djoser. The Medium Pyramid was originally planned to be a seven-step pyramid. But around step five, the plans change. A little flashback here to Djoser, maybe. And the pyramid was enlarged and intended to be a nine-step pyramid. The pyramid stones were inward sloping and uh, combined with the slope, the design was intended to be an enormous step pyramid. The original step pyramid's plan is not only thing that's similar to Joseph's pyramid. We also find the enclosure and here we also see a repetition of the sudden burial. Uh, innovation. One innovation in this pyramid though is that the burial chamber was above ground and incorporated a corbel roof. A corbelled roof is an engineering method where the stones in the roof are extended slightly beyond the layer below, gradually converging towards the top. The corbelled roof creates a sort of inverted pyramid inside the chamber and helps with the weight distribution. It redirects the force of the weight above and down and to the side, helping create a self-supporting structure and is, as we see, very durable. But 15 years into Sneferu's reign, things change for some reason. He ordered the then-completed pyramid in Meidum to be abandoned. A new burial started to be constructed, this time in Dashor, about 40 kilometers from Meidum. Here we will see a new architectural idea take form. Instead of the stepped pyramid, Snefru aimed for a true pyramid with straight sides. The original base was um, supposed to be around 150 meters, but the builders changed the angle of the slope. You see, a stepped pyramid usually have a 72 to 78 degree angle on it. At a bent pyramid, we will learn why it got this name in, in just a moment. Hang on here. The, the angle was changed to be 58 degrees. And this angle would be one of the three significant issues <laughs> with the pyramid. And the second issue is that if you don't build on proper foundation, the second issue was that it, the pyramid was not built on 
proper solid foundation. Part of the pyramid was set on sand. If you build your pyramid on sand, you will have a bad time as Sneferous builders would learn. And the third issue was they still built it as one would do a stepped pyramid with the stones leaning inward towards the center of the pyramid. And due to this excessive weight and pressure there and the parts of the pyramid being on sand, the pyramid started to settle and this settling started to develop cracks in the burial chamber and throughout the pyramid. If you were allowed to enter the chamber, you would be able to see how the builders attempted to reinforce and support the crackling pyramid with massive cedar logs imported from Lebanon. Some changes were made to the construction. They extended the foundation by 40 meters and tried to reduce the angle to only 55 degrees. Now this landlord special didn't really work and it became clear that the pyramid was beyond saving. But instead of just abandoning it altogether, Sneferu actually complete the structure. But they drastically changed the angle to 43 degrees to save material and time, creating this noticeable bend in the pyramid itself. By now, Sneferu had been on the throne for 30 years. Time was starting to run out here, and he didn't have the burial that he wanted yet. But instead of giving up, just returning to Medum, Sneferu attempt one last pyramid. In this new attempt, the angle is gentler. It's only 43 degrees. They seem to have learned a lot from constructing the bent pyramid. And we don't see the same type of experimentation and mixing of various innovative ideas as we see in the bent pyramid. This pyramid appears more planned and uh, properly executed. Since time was running out, things needed to go well, and they did. We get the first true pyramid at last, and the graffiti on the stones also help us date the construction to the start of the 30th year of Sneferu's reign. The mortuary complex is smaller. I, I assume it had to take a bit of the back seat of the project. Uh, an exciting thing, however, is that... Um, during the construction of the North or the Red Pyramid, the one that got uh, completed and where Sneferu got buried, Sneferu returned to Meidun to his abandoned step pyramid and he started to fill out the steps to create another true pyramid. And the reason for this, it is a bit unclear, but it could be that Sneferu decided to have a secondary burial, as we learned from the earlier kings. And he then wanted to have a unified design. Unfortunately, these feelings are no longer there. And the false pyramid. It must have been quite an individualist Sneferu, but it all shows that this was humans who built the pyramids. We see how they experimented, made mistakes, and learned from these mistakes and projects. We see how things evolve and how things are becoming standards, such as the Southern Pyramid um, that we found in Djoser's. And then we learn of things that disappear, such as the Hebseb enclosure within the mortal complex. And what we have examined here will be fundamental when speaking about Sneferu's son, Hufu, the Great Pyramid of Giza Builder. However, 
that will be something for the next time when we discuss the last three pyramids on this top 10 list. Until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or even better, to your friends. Tell them about an episode you love and just tell them to tune in. And if you want to learn more about me and the podcast, you can go to diggingupancientaliens.com. You will find an extensive list of sources and resources and reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter on the episode page for this show. And if you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash diggingupancientaliens. There you can get early and even extended episodes, bonus episode, and my eternal thank you. And if you don't want to play favorites, but still want to support good archaeological content, you can become a member at the archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com, a membership that includes a wide array of goodies, too. And if you want to contact me, it can be done through most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martelore created the intro music, and, and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Tin Foil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep showing that science. Oh,